Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Episode 6, The Outside World Fills Its Blank Space on the Map. Last time, we delved into the topography and past of the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo. We met the Lumbalunda states and how their model of government, similar to feudalism, was adopted by peoples with a common identity, inhabiting, communicating and trading across the great expanse of Central Africa. We know that these were aware of the European incursions, from the 17th century raids on the Portuguese and their allies in present-day Angola. At this time, Portuguese traders documented African caravans selling slaves and ivory in exchange for European textiles and manufactured goods. The fundamental difference in the relationship that these eastern empires had when compared to the Kingdom of the Congo was proximity. Bordered by the difficulty of travel across mountains and lakes, and protected by the tropical diseases which the Europeans had not adapted to, these peoples lived beyond the range of incursions. Europeans were not directly at their doorstep. They traded with the centre through local caravans, and they did not actually travel to nor settle in these areas. To further complete the picture of trade, we are better to think of these trade routes as caravan relays. The caravans described above were not extensive trade companies that travelled continuously from east to west, as you would imagine the caravans winding across the Asian steppes or the Sahara. Instead, they were limited to travel by roughly six days of travelling, where the goods were traded with intermediary caravans, who would then continue the journey of goods. There was no direct contact between the vast majority of central peoples and the coast. Looking east of the DRC borders to provide context, the coastal peoples living on the Indian Ocean had quite a different experience. By the 7th century, traders had started to settle and the cultures had started to fuse. Arabs, primarily from Oman, had such established trade that by the 7th century, an early sect of Islam, Ibadi, was being represented in early coastal mosques. The passage from the Indian Ocean coast to Oman was straightforward and predictable. Travelling in Daz, sailors were able to use prevailing northerly winds from October to March to travel down the coast. From April to September, they were assisted by southerly winds. Modern recreations of this passage suggests that it took five to six weeks to travel on a single leg of the journey. Though long established, these Arab trade routes were themselves disrupted by the Portuguese Empire. In the late 15th century, the Portuguese controlled trade routes all the way to Macau in the Far East and had travelled as far as Japan. Under the command of people such as Vasco da Gama, Almeida and Albuquerque in their caravels, far more advanced than any other vessels that they encountered, they were able to make their way round Cape Horn to create permanent settlements and forts along the East African coast. Their power was so overwhelming that eventually both ends of the trade route were controlled by them as they built forts in Oman, where the Portuguese forts of Marani and Jalili still watch over Muscat's harbour. Portuguese hegemony was brief, though, and disrupted by jealous nobles and propaganda to a vain king, their best people were pushed aside from command or their opinions were overlooked. By 1650, the Portuguese had been expelled from Muscat, and 48 years later, the Omanis had unified to such an extent that they retook the robust Fort Jesus in Mombasa. Despite the violent siege, this fort still stands today and can be visited as a tourist attraction. It's at the mouth of the Mombasa estuary in Kenya's southern city, only an hour away from the main tourist beaches. 
If you're fortunate enough to ever have the opportunity to visit there, it's worth a trip. From this time on, the Portuguese were confined to the south, in today's Mozambique, and in the early 1700s, the Arabs, or Omanis, had established robust settlements on the islands of Pemba and Zanzibar, as well as on a number of coastal towns. It is with the Arabs that the eastern DRC peoples first had their direct contact with the outside world. From 1700, the Arabic and African cultures became more and more intertwined. The main language in Zanzibar and Pemba was Swahili, with Arabic only retained for dialogue with Omanis or Imams. The first written documentation in Swahili was using Arabic letters, although until the 19th century written documentation about the regions was sparse. The documentation I have found from the century is mostly personal accounts from European, or British, explorers. These were often written as adrenaline fueled adventure stories, which were very popular in European countries at the time. They were written of their time, but they were written by people who had different agendas and political views, and they do provide us with a window, however distorted, into the Eastern Congo at this time. I have used these to a great extent in the next few podcasts, but I have been looking for DRC voices. If anyone has any ideas, let me know. As with their European counterparts to the south and west, the Arabic traders were in the region for slaves, and more emphatically, ivory. In contrast, however, Arabic traders, given their regional common history and language, made much further inland journeys than the Europeans. By 1858, Richard Burton, the British army captain turned explorer, wrote of an Arab settlement on the eastern shores of Lake Tanganyika at Ujiji. This was 1,200 kilometres, or about 750 miles, inland from the eastern coast. The push inland was rapid, and only 11 years later, in 1869, the Scottish missionary David Livingstone met an Arab who was returning from the river Lualuba, north of Lake Imweru, right in the middle of Haute Katanga province of today. The widespread Lunda Luba tribes were seeing encroachment from both sides. Environmental evidence suggests that the Arab drive in land was necessitated by new territories required to find ivory. Elephant herds were being culled to a great extent in the coastal regions. Burton's 1858 diaries describe great elephant herds roaming the coastal regions, although by 1871 David Livingstone mentioned that he had to travel a thousand kilometres in land before seeing a small herd of elephants at Tabora. Such were the heights of ivory demand that it was beyond the sustainable level of the elephant population. Although they travelled far inland, the Arabs were not numerous in these outposts. Burton wrote that there were only about 25 Arabs in the main Tabora settlement, and by 1885 contemporary writer Wilkinson estimates that there were only about 150 Arabs in the entire Congo region. These were, however, wealthy, with more modern weapons and were able to exploit the rivalries between different tribes, as well as offering local tribes the ability to trade what in their eyes was low-value ivory for trade goods such as American textiles. These were living amongst a wide variety of tribes which were recorded in detail by the explorers. Tibu Tip's biography, written at the behest of a German writer, gives excellent insight to this. This is nicely summarised and contextualised in Stuart Lang's book on the life and times of Tibu Tip. It presents a more Arab-centred view of the region, as indeed it's intended to, but it provides a well-written and fundamentally very good historic story. In this, and indeed Tip's own diaries, we see how the Arabs moved into today's DRC, leading to encounters with larger, more autonomous tribes. 
These tribes had developed independent of outside interference, and they represented great swathes of land and hundreds of thousands of people. As the Arab caravans started to cross into today's DRC, Tibu Tip's own porters, despite their enforced labour, advised against moving beyond Lake Tanganyika. Although they came from the eastern coast, they were fully aware of the tribal structure of the region and were able to warn of larger hostile kingdoms which had killed Arabs previously. These warnings went unheeded, and we have first-hand records of an Arab caravan meeting the empires of the eastern Congo. From Lake Tanganyika, this caravan travelled west over six days. They passed through very densely populated regions. Travelling through the single tracks in the savannas and forests, they walked through literally thousands of villages, all of which they found to be loyal to one king. This was the Tabwa kingdom of Ansamba III, headed by a king named Chipili Chopioka. This kingdom had grown in the 1840s and 1850s around Lake Imweru, and was of a large enough size to gain tribute from the established Luba Empire to its west. The king's rule was ruthless, and Ansama had a habit and took pleasure in inflicting cruel punishments on people who fell out of line or favour. Transgressors of his rule, or at his whim, were blinded or had a limb or nose cut off. This was a brutal environment and the population would have seen people who had suffered these terrible fates at the hand of their king or chief. If this is representative of the kingdoms of Eastern DLC, I cannot imagine that the population would have a great sense of loyalty to the king, beyond fear. The chief does not seem anywhere near as benevolent as King Alfonso I, who was desperately looking after his people in the 15th century Kingdom of the Congo. Ansama would have been aware of the largest Arab caravan to enter his territory headed by Hamad, based in Zanzibar, in 1867. As described by Hamad himself, it numbered around 900 men, although 105 of these carried guns, which was a huge number for caravans at the time. The number of guns was increased by a chance meeting that he had had with his uncle's caravan on the way. We can assume that the African king was not overly worried by this. After all, he had thousands and thousands of warriors at his disposal. The coming meeting is important for us, though. This was in effect the first significant encounter that the eastern Congolese tribes would have had with the outside world. We know, of course, that they would never have called themselves this, and any notion of identity with the Kingdom of the Congo in the far west would have been baffling at best. But it's a useful reminder to us that the people living in today's DRC were now directly impacted by the non-African world from both the west and the east coasts. Ensama's own village was heavily defended, surrounded by three lanes of stockade and a ditch filled with thorn trees. In this security the king had grown old, now in his eighties, and due to excessive drinking of the local beer he had grown to such an extent that he needed to be carried around. He was used to total power and totally unaware of the dynamics of the coming meeting. His subordinate chiefs in the villages along the way had traded with the caravan, exchanging two or three tusks in return for what Hamad described as a moderate amount of gifts. Following this precedence, the Arabs ramped up the gifts for the meeting with the great Ensemble and gave what was described as a great amount of goods. They then exchanged pleasantries and waited and waited, but nothing happened. Eventually they asked if there would be an exchange of ivory. After all, this is what they really wanted. They weren't that interested in Ensama beyond his elephant tusks. This greatly offended Ensama, 
Among the tabway this was a massive transgression to custom, and goods had to be freely presented. Insulted and angry, he ordered the party from his village. The next day, Insama summoned the Arabs back to his village, and they anticipated that they were to receive an exchange of ivory after the dust settled on the previous day's misunderstanding. Hamed, ten armed men and ten porters to carry the ivory back, set off. It was, however, an ambush. The chief had underhandedly planned that the Arab escorts would abandon the party once they were in the clearing. The escorts fled to meet the archers hidden in the surrounding undergrowth and ambushed the Arabs with volleys of arrows. The Arabs were astonished, and Hamad was hit by two arrows, injuring his leg. Namsa, however, was determined that the visitors would pay for their lack of respect the day before. But the Arabs were not phased for long. Hamsa was decisive under pressure, and organised the party to open fire. The ferocity and noise of the guns astonished and frightened the chief and his people, and they fled rapidly under volley fire. It may be an exaggeration, but Hamad writes in his memoirs that thousands died, under both fire and the crush of the stampede. After the maelstrom, the tabway retreated outside the camp, and the Arabs hunkered down in the centre, surrounded now in the chief's encampment. Even now Insama was complacent, and his people sat around their campfires smoking bahang, a local cannabis mixture, and waited for the next day when they could overwhelm the Arabs. They could not rest long, however, as Hamad sent raiding parties out in the night, reportedly taking 600 lives at the loss of none. The killing continued for the next few days, and the Tabwa launched mass attacks on consecutive days, only to lose hundreds of men in the face of short-range volley fire. It was a decisive victory for the Arabs. At the end of the violence, the Arabs resumed their mission and went to expect in Zama's ivory hoard. It was immense. Sorted in two large huts, the chief had accumulated over 34 tonnes of ivory. There was no way that the caravan could carry all of this back to the coast, and they raided the nearest villages to capture slaves to help them carry back the huge horde. The effect on the people was dramatic. After this battle was renamed after the sound of a rifle firing, Tibu Tip. This was not a gradual conflict of near equals as in the West 300 years prior. In this encounter, modern weapons had become much more deadly, and the encounters were decidedly one-sided. In effect, the power that the centuries-old empires and kingdoms had was washing away. Added to this, the Arabs knew what great riches lay in these vulnerable kingdoms. The Arabs, though, were not the only outsiders interested in the resources of East Africa. In Europe, the powers of Britain, France and Germany were growing, and within their global ambitions, Africa was very much in focus. They were keen to trade, and although their plans would later become much more concrete, in the middle of the 19th century, what they were really interested in was trade, souls, known as the spreading of Christianity, and filling in the gaps on the map which would help the first two. We have already met Burton, who along with Speak made one of the first European forays into East Africa in the 1850s to follow that great obsession, the source of the Nile. It was directly after the Insama battle, though, that Tibu Tip met one of the explorers still famous today, the missionary David Livingstone. Tibu Tip states that he met Livingstone without goods or food at a village Livingstone himself locates at the east of Lake Mwero, southeast of today's DRC border in Zambia, although of course at this time these borders did not exist. Livingstone was looking for guides back to the lake, but had been running from Insama's tribe who were killing anyone not in their tribe as revenge for the humiliation from the battle with the Arabs. 
The surprise defeat had started a war, which was only resolved some six months later with a final trade deal favouring the Arabs. Grateful of the protection, Livingston travelled with Tibutip for a number of months, but remained as neutral as possible, although he was 100% reliant on the Arabs for protection and food. Well, almost 100%, for he always travelled with his two staunchly loyal companions, Chuma and Susi. He was, though, protected, and although he carried no weapons, one of the conditions of the peace agreement above was that he would receive safe passage. He travelled east across Lake Tanganyika to Ujuji on the eastern shore, and remained there, spreading the word of God and trying to work out the flow of the rivers in the region, which he was convinced would help him with this task. It was here, at Ujuji, in the northwest of today's Tanzania, that Henry Morton Stanley found him, in March 1871. He wasn't really lost, and his friend, the Scotsman Dr Turk in Zanzibar, knew where he was. That wasn't the kind of story that would excite the readers of the New York Herald who had sponsored the Stanley expedition, though, so there was a bit of dramatic license. The meeting was largely uneventful in the region, and there seemed to be no immediate repercussions. It was just one quirky European meeting another. Even if Stanley was carrying the star-spangled banner and travelling as an American, but in the eyes of the wider world this was huge. The wonderful Dr Livingstone had been lost in darkest Africa for three years, and the audacious Stanley had risked all to find him on a huge adventure. From this Stanley was catapulted to being one of the most famous explorers in Europe and America, and his relationship with the Congo was just beginning. This though was still three years ago, but we will definitely come to that. Next time we pick up the story when Tibu Tip enters today's DRC for the third time and the pace of change and the impact on people's lives quickens substantially. Buoyed by the military victory over the mighty Enzama, the Arabs were about to become far more aggressive. The incursions into DRC would start to ramp up, and the central tribes would now meet the outside world face to face for the first time. Little did they know that this was just the beginning. So until then, thanks for listening, and safe travels.